0: Well, folks, good morning, J Deship. It's Jerry Adams here, Irish. You know, dates can evoke powerful memories for all of us: the birth or death of a loved one, a wedding, a new job, a joyous family occasion, a tragedy. And some memories can be so strong that it's as if we are still there now. The smells, the noise, the fear, the joy. Or the sadness. March the 1st, the date I pen these words, is one of those dates for me. 40 years ago at around this time Bobby Sands refused his breakfast and commenced his first day of hunger strike. This was the second hunger strike in six months. In the first day of his prison diary, Bobby wrote I have considered all the arguments and tried every means to avoid what has become the unavoidable. It has been forced upon me and my comrades by four and a half years of stark inhumanity. After the ending of the first hunger strike on the 18th of December 1980, every effort was made to avoid a second hunger strike, through the remaining weeks of that year and into January and February, I can testify to the fact that every effort was made to bring the prison protest to an agreed settlement. But Thatcher, the British government, the prison administration, or at least the more regressive element there, saw the ending of the first hunger strike as weakness by the blanket men and the women in our They thought it provided An opportunity to break the prisoners and through them the struggle for freedom. Thatcher was committed to the criminalization policy. The political prisoners were equally, if not more, determined to resist it. Despite almost five years of horrendous conditions of beatings and isolation, of forced washes and institutionalized deprivations, and violence on a daily basis, their commitment and their determination to challenge the prison system was truly inspiring. Bobby underlined this collective and powerful state of mind for me when he wrote on the 12th of March on his diary, This is most important. Nothing else seems to matter except that lingering, constant, remaining thought, never give up no matter how bad, how black, how painful, or heartbreaking, never give up, never despair, never lose hope. On a more gentle topic, I've always enjoyed walking, especially with a dog or dogs. And as youngsters, my brother Paddy, Joe McGee, my friend, our friend, and I would tramp the Black Mountain above Ballamurphy and beyond. The enjoyment of walking with dogs, especially across open fields or hills, has remained with me all my life. Sometimes we walked to Glennavy, which is a good old track out on the Loch Shore. Later we graduated from walking to cycling, later again on the Honda, Honda 50. Joe and I often went to Clint Navy and up and down and around all the countryside of that part of Loch Nye. But we would always spend some part of our day walking. Once we took an especially memorable hitchhiking holiday. We persuaded a van driver for Easton's news agents to pick us up early and take us to Derry. We arrived there at 7am. Everywhere was closed. Walking out the road to Donegal we got a lift on the back of an open lorry and we lay there on our backs, gazing at the mountains and the blue sky as we drove westwards. After three days and nights camping beside a graveyard in Ghidor, down at Gallan, we made our way to Slego and on to Galway. We stayed for a while in the City of the Tribes, which was buzzing, as ever, with young people, traditional music, in its own particular form of hectic crack. Then off down to Cork and off again after a few days up to Dublin and my Aunt Maggie's via Tipperary. And I've walked everywhere in Dublin since then, and before then, and its hills, and its coastal areas, and its great parks. I also got to know later and well, walking most of the area around Balnamore and up around from Shambo and here on in the company of John Jomaguer, I find it to be a most beautiful part of Ireland. But wherever I walk, whether in Meath, on the hill of Tara, across the Cooley Mountains, up Gullion, round the cages of Long Cache, or to the top of Erlegan and Muckish, or in Wicklow or Kerry, or on foreign shores, I always return to the Belfast Hills. I was reminded of this by last week's Doolra column in the Andersonstown News. It was the story of Orrin Kelly and his amazing discovery that Pine Martins have returned to the Belfast Hills. The Pine Martin is an Irish mammal which was forced to move further and further west by the cutting down of forests and woods. Our friend Sean McBraddock who lives in Leiterham constantly posts photos of Pine Martins in his part of the world, but none have been seen here for generations. The Pine Martin legs trees. It's no surprise therefore that its name is Cot Cran, the cat of the tree, or the tree cat. Oren found evidence of, of the presence. He was convinced of Pine Martins in the Belfast Hills last September. He's studying animal management and he persuaded his course tutors at Belfast Met to undertake a research project to prove or disprove his contention. He set up camera tracks and to his joy he caught the image of a pen Martin late one night in January. So, has Hesakara, very well done. And well done also to all those who have made. The Belfast tells a success story for walkers and lovers of archaeology and fauna and birds and other wildlife. The view across Belfast is striking. On a clear day, you can see the Mourne Mountains, the hills of South Armagh, the Cooleys, and on a very good day, the Sugarloaf Mountain and Wicklow, and to the northwest, the hills of Tyrone. You can also see the Scottish, Cumbrian, and Welsh uplands to the east. You can see Scotland on a clear, clear day. Thirty years ago, it was all so different. An MP's letter, which I wrote at the time and sent back to me last week by a Bella Murphy exile in Dermot Hill, brought all this back. Another Dermot Hill resident, the late Terry Enright Sr., a leading campaigner, was our most prominent mountain man then. The British, by that time, controlled most of what had been our playground as children. They controlled much of the land above West Belfast. In 1991, I called for the mountain range from Collin Mountain across the Davison Black Mountains to the Cave Hill to be cleared, a conservation area and developed as a nature reserve and parkland. In June 1999, Sinn Féin sponsored a conference on land use in West Belfast. I told the audience that there is a need to conserve the natural environment. Sinn Féin has consistently supported proposals to maintain the bog meadows and to end quarrying on the Black Mountain. We have with others proposed the development of a regional park on the Belfast Hills for the benefit of all our citizens. These natural attributes are both our heritage and our legacy. They need to be conserved for future generations to enjoy and explore. During this time, many local community groups and environmental campaigners, like the late Terry Enright campaigned hard to preserve the hills, to stop the quarrying on the mountain. Part of this included an annual Belfast Hills walk, which attracted thousands. At The same time there was a campaign to demilitarise the hills to return land the British military had stolen from the local community, and for the British military presence on Divis Mountain to end. The demand was for the British Ministry of Defence to gift the site at Dibbys Mountain to the Belfast Hills Trust. In June 2000, I wrote to Adam Ingram, who was then one of MoM's Secretaries of State in the NIO. I raised with him the future of 1,600 acres of land on Dibbys Mountain above Belfast that had been declared surplus to requirements by the British military who were planning to sell it off. I said in my letter, if this land is now available, I would suggest that consideration should be given to handing it over to a body which would open up its potential and provide managed access for the people of Belfast, while at the same time conserving the natural beauty and wildlife of this landscape. Subsequently, I raised the issue with Mo Molum and with Tony Blair, the British Prime Minister. Mo Molum was the British Secretary of State, and I used to meet her regularly at Hillsborough House we would walk often on a Sunday in the grounds there she told me she hoped to open the gardens up to the public someday. Thankfully, she succeeded. We also discussed ways of making the Belfast Hills a parkland. She undertook to find a way to do this. Eventually, she came back with a suggestion about the natural, about the national trust. After two years of intense lobbying, it was announced in September 2003 that the National Trust had been successful in buying Davis Mountain with the support of the Heritage Lottery Commission and the Environmental Heritage Service. The Trust outlined its plans to open access on the mountain for the people of Belfast to enjoy. The Belfast Hills project has never looked back. It stretches from Boomers Hill the Collin Mountain in the west, across to the Black Mountain, Divis Mountain, to Squires Hill, to Cave Hill, and then to Corn Money. The numbers of people who walk the hills now every week is amazing. In fact, so many want to enjoy the serenity and beauty of the hills that parking has become a real problem at the Divis Road entrance, and recently Paul Maskey, the local MP, has been negotiating for the provision of additional facilities. Getting the balance right between the rights of the local people and the popularity of the hills is a challenge, especially in pandemic times. The development of the Belfast Hills in the interests of citizens is a success story, but much more is possible. It is possible to continue to enhance the facilities, the educational and environmental potential and the accessibility to the public And to continue to see this significant natural resource developed in the interests of future generations. We owe a lot to Terry Inright and the other stalwart mountain men and women. So Shinai, Shinma Mej and Shakun Shaw, Gunuri and Ta Levsha Gulyar.